Welcome to the British Army's Leadership Podcast, brought to you by the Centre for Army Leadership. This week's podcast is presented by WN Leadership, Warrant Officer Class 1, Chris Nicholl. Warrant Officer Class 1, Sarah Cox, has been the Command Sergeant Major for the Army Recruiting and Initial Training Command since March 2020. WN Cox joined the Army in 1997 as an apprentice chef at the Army Catering College in Aldershot. As a chef, she has served with a number of different units including Royal Engineers, Royal Artillery, British Army Training Unit Kenya and the 2nd Battalion the Parachute Regiment, during which time she has deployed on various operations and exercises across the world including Sierra Leone, Bosnia, Cyprus and Iraq. Since 2007 and between catering job roles, she has also been a Phase 2 catering instructor, a syndicate instructor at the ARITC Staff Leadership School in Purbright, the warrant officer for the coaching advisory team at the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst was the first W01 leadership for the Army at the Centre for Army Leadership. However, her career highlight to date was as the Regimental Sergeant Major at the ARITC Staff Leadership School. In March 2020, she took up the post as the ARITC Command Sergeant Major, becoming the first female to be appointed a Command Sergeant Major within the Army. W01 Cox has gained many qualifications while serving with one of her biggest achievements being a first-class honours degree in leadership and management through Northumbria University. On the New Year's Honours list in 2019, she was awarded the Meritus Service Medal. Outside the Army, she enjoys travelling, is a keen swimmer and supports the Army women's rugby team. Sarah, welcome to the Cal Podcast and uh, thank you for, uh, for your time. Uh, we're just going to jump straight into talking about yourself and your leadership and, and how you've grown up through the Army. Can you tell us about your background and your childhood? Who are your role models growing up? And what are your defining experiences and how have they shaped you into the leader you are today? Yeah, and first of all, I just want to say uh, thank you for inviting me. I have to admit, it feels very strange being sat this side of the table and being interviewed rather than being the interviewer, as I did in my previous role at the Cal. But just sort of a bit about my background. So um, for me, was born in Surrey um, into uh, an actual loving, you know, stable family. Um, you know, we lived on a farm on the on the borders of Surrey and had a general upbringing in terms of schooling. So went to a local uh, secondary school and I suppose for me you know that I suppose we talk about upbringings and role models you know and, and you mentioned some role models there that have helped me define I suppose you've, you've always got to start with your parents your parents are you know normally are your role models straight away and and I look back at um sort of my mum and dad and I am a I am the middle daughter um so I've got two sisters and I suppose for me, my my mum and my dad sacrificed quite a lot for us children. Uh, and what I mean by that, you know, they both had working jobs. Um, sometimes they had two two jobs each, and um, but they tried to give us, you know, everything that we they could, um, both, you know, financially, but supporting us in everything that we did for for our our like school. So so school for me was, I suppose you could say, if you were asked to ask any of my school friends, I was the in the goody two shoes group, you know, sort of not really getting the detentions or being told off but just grace through floated through school and through through the GCSEs I suppose going on to school with um, teams and sports very much big part of my my um, growing up so I did GCSE PE so very much you know the sort of the sports played a big part of 
I suppose, building me into the person I am today in terms of teamwork and coming together and working with teams, you know, so I sort of played team sports. But then I also did a lot of individual sports, so things like trampolining, athletics. From, you know, sort of looking back now, I suppose that there's there's kind of like two sides of me. There's the part of me that loves being part of a team and loves being around people and moving together, going for the goal. But I suppose uh, a big part of me, I like I like my own space. I like being, um, having the chance just to sort of be on my own and reflect. And my sisters would be the ones indoors watching telly or doing whatever indoors. And I would be the one that had disappeared with the dog farm, building dens and trees, etc., etc. But I suppose growing up, again, partly my mother's fault because she was brown owl of the local brownies, but I was uh, a brownie. I went on to the guides. And I think those two organisations they, they again bring that sense of teamwork and working together and, and um, sort of achieving those small goals. I think I could, I always knew something was missing in terms of the outdoorsy stuff. And I suppose for, for me, it was my mother that I owe, I suppose, my army career to because she happened to be reading a local newspaper that was saying that my local army cadet detachment was actually opening its doors for the first time to females. Now, it wasn't the f- it was open its doors the first time. It's just that the advertisement was to attract more females into it. And she showed it to me and said, what do you think? And I was like, let's, let's go. It's an open evening. And so we got in contact and said that we'd like to come down. She drove me down there. Um, I was the only one that tipped up. So male or female, I was the only person that ended up arriving on this open day. As soon as we arrived, it was just, you know, really warm welcome. I got taken away by one of the cadet instructors and by some of the cadets and we went off. And then my mum was looked after as well. So the the rest of the team staff were, you know, sort of explaining what the cadets was all about. She said, I know this is what you want to do. And, you know, so the question is, do you want to do it? And I was like, yeah, this is this is for me. Um, but interestingly, I was a little bit young at the time, so I was only 12 and four months, I think I was. Um, so we did have to sort of wait um, until I was able to do it. But what was good is the, the detachment stayed in contact with me. And actually, they did get me down as long as my mum was there to, to, you know, to be like the, my duty of care. So it's their, you know, their selfish commitment and... I suppose their support and their, you know, they could see the passion that it was giving me and it was, I suppose, a bit of satisfaction for them to see that I was doing something. And I suppose I need to thank my sisters as well because they had to be, you know, sort of committed to allowing me to do that. So Something I think we can all relate to is the uh, the sacrifices that our parents make as, as we grow older and have our own families and start making those sacrifices ourselves for our children. You talk about the cadet and the experiences you got from there, but... Uh, as, as you grew up and moved through your school years, what, what inspired you to join the army? What truly captured your imagination and, and, and made you join and, and sign on that dotted line and, and take that oath of allegiance? It's a great question because, you know, I've sort of been thinking about this over the last sort of few years, is especially doing the job that I'm doing in, in the recruiting space. And I kind of trying to look back at, you know, what made me join the army? And I can't, I suppose I can't define it to one particular thing. Um, there are certain people that helped me uh, and again, I talk about the cadets. That is a huge part, I suppose. Do I dare say it? And some people, some of your listeners might um, relate to this um, as a young, as a child. Um, Sunday nights, nine o'clock, my treat, if I had been a good girl that week, was to watch Soldier Soldier. So I dare, do I dare say Robson Green and Joe Flynn had a huge part to play in me joining the army. A combination of the love of the outdoors, the love of being around t- people and, and working as a team, towards a, a goal really is, is, is what 
attracted me to the army. As much as I say I like being with people and doing the same as people, I also like going off on my own and doing something different. Now, initially, um, I had plans to go and do A-levels and look into the sports and the physio side of things, but the college, the school I was at wasn't offering them. So the college that I was looking at, I, you know, I just thought I can't do another two years of education. And I just thought, you know what, the, the army would take me today. Let's just do it. And so in, so initially I went to the career centre as well, um, right back when I was 14. So I suppose this, you know, the seed was sown early to see what sort of GCSEs I needed. And at the time, actually, there was some good advice if, um, if I could take a language, do German, because obviously Germany was a big part of uh, locations for the army. Um, so I think a combination of the cadets... Just loving the outdoors, just being around people, doing something different, being able to see different things. I suppose it was the attraction. But yeah, the, my cadet instructors, my detachment commanders um, were probably the ones that really sort of like were the role models to, to do that. You say that one of your biggest achievements is your first class uh, honours degree in leadership and management. Can you talk us through your education journey and how the army's helped you to develop as a person? It was a year of my life that was a hard year. But again, with in terms of education, I've already said, you know, up to GCSEs, got average GCSEs from Ds. I did get one A star, which I was quite pleased with, but that was in PE. You know, average education. And like I say, didn't really fancy doing longer term um, higher education. I joined at 16, so I was an apprentice. Um, so went to St Omer Barrett's in Aldershot. Um, so did the, the normal basic training all the apprentices went through, and then we did three months of education. And at the time, I, I probably thought, you know, why am I doing this? I've just got my GCSEs. I've, I've got, you know, I've got Cs in, in, in English and Maths. But I suppose looking back now in hindsight, it, it wasn't necessarily about me. It was about some of the others. That, uh, and some of my peers and my, my friends in my intake, some of them had dropped out of school they had no education so so for them it, it was really interesting to see backgrounds of those individuals and actually how it helped them to to develop themselves um, because as you can imagine being a chef you need to follow recipes and add figures up together work out timings etc etc so it is it was a key part of our education is really good thing about the army is it doesn't matter really what sort of educational background you come from, whether you're, you know, from university or you've dropped out of school or for whatever reason you've just, you know, you haven't got a certificate to say that you can do X, Y and Z, is the army will help and support you and get you qualifications in, 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 in certain areas. So with my, with my degree, again, it was, I wanted to challenge myself. I wanted to do something different for, for me, but at the same time, improve my knowledge. And, and my degree was in leadership and management. And, and fortunately, and, and those, those that are listening that are in the army will know that when you do your warrant officer's CLM or ALDP as it is, um, you will, you can get certain certain sort of points towards helping you accrue a degree. And I used the pathway of going to Northumbria University, so I was fortunate that I only had to complete a year um, of the of the degree programme. But I suppose, uh, and I talk about challenge and uh, challenging myself, uh, another, again, I go back to my mum. She's, she was my, um, my challenge. Um, so none of my, none of my sisters went to university. None of us, you know, mum and dad didn't have degrees. Later on in life, um, two, three years before I completed my degree, she was the first member of our family to complete a degree. But she did the long sort of haul, so she did it over three years of, of 
working a very hard full-time job um, as well as doing um, the home study and doing a degree. And I'd seen what she had, you know, she had been through. Unfortunately, in, in the last year of her degree, when she was writing her dissertation, um, we lost uh, my grandfather, so her father, um, and she still walked away with a 2-1. And I'd never been more proud of anybody the day that I went and watched her get, get her scroll on stage. And, and because I knew what she'd been through, I knew, I knew how difficult both uh, mentally for her in terms of actually studying at her age, as she said, you know, I'm the oldest in my class. But, you know, I was really proud of the fact that she had done that. Um, and at the end of it, she said, now it's your turn, but you've got to beat a 2-1. And I was like, OK, no pressure, challenge accepted. And I thought, no, I need to do this as well to, to sort of for myself, but also for her. And and that's that was, you know, one of the reasons why I did it. But also it helped me. Uh, in my education in terms of leadership and management, you know, I some of my previous jobs, you know, working at Sandhurst as a coaching advisory team and um, and also working in, in the coaching environment in terms of training. I thought I knew a little bit about leadership and, and management. And um, do you know what? The degree just, you know, just broadened that horizon. But, you know, so the army throughout, I think throughout your career at different stages provides that education. It provides that little bit of knowledge and those little bit of skills that you need to be able to do the next job or the next role you're going into. But I also need to add there that although the army gives you these stepping stones, they are just courses to provide you with your next role. You as a person have a responsibility to develop yourself as well. I always thought I would never be able to complete a degree and never be able to go on and get anything like that. And I did it. And I know a lot of soldiers out there through, you know, through working at the, at the Centre for Army Leadership. One of the things I noticed is how many soldiers are doing degrees and doing, you know, educational courses out there. Um, and they never thought that they would be ever given this opportunity. You know, and there's plenty of examples. So the Army has really developed in opening doors for, for individuals um, to be able to you know, develop their education. What key trait do you think you've picked up from your mum? throughout your career and you've managed to develop and turn into to one of your your key driving factors? Something that my mum has said to me in the past is she feels like I'm living her life. And not that she, she said she never regrets having us as children and she would never change anything about, um, you know, about her life. But she said if I hadn't had the children, she said, I'd like to think my kind of life would be similar to what you're doing, the, the going out, the traveling, the being able to, you know, sort of see the world and challenge yourself and just push yourself. I think um, what my mum has given me is the ability to be empathetic. She, and, and caring to, if I can, you know, if she could support somebody or help somebody in some little way, she would. Um, she's very, you know, she's very, give, you know, li- loving and giving. She will always drop everything to help anybody. I suppose that's a bit like me. Um, I will do anything for anybody if I can. Do you know what? That's me. Um, and that I can see that's my mum because she will, you know, do anything for her friends just as, as, as I will. So I think that's probably the biggest thing that she's she's given me is is the ability to to be loving, to be caring, to be empathetic when needed to be, even if I don't understand someone's situation. How has leadership in the army changed throughout your career? And uh, how have you adapted uh, your leadership style to these changes? I joined back in 1997 and I kind of look back to my basic training. 
And I thought, you know, I, I look back at my basic training now uh, and yes, there was lots of shouting, you know, there was lots of group punishment, do I dare say. So, but, you know, never any, never any bullying or, or anything like that. But I would say looking at the styles and, and right back at the beginning, very didactic. So it was very, you know, just do what I saying and just follow you know just do it don't argue just get on and do it whereas I think over the years I've noticed the change in as I've mentioned the coaching and and the the more of the visionary the follow me type um you know sort of this is my vision and the coach yeah so coaching's played a big part and I suppose I've seen the journey of the, the coaching culture coming into the army um, so I was fortunate enough to go to uh, a place called ASLS, the Staff Leadership School, right when it o- first opened its doors. And we can talk about ASLS maybe a little bit later. But it was, you know, values-based leadership was brought in back in sort of 2005 about, you know, just how using different language and how using coaching techniques of listening and and asking effective questions and just talking about body language can change someone's performance. That started, you know, um, for the army right up in Catrick, you know, they sort of brought in the values-based leadership and using those techniques and those methods to get the, the individuals to perform better and to unlock their own potential. It's not, it wasn't just a, right, do this, do that. It was a, okay, you're going to do this, but how are you going to do it? Why are you doing it? It's sort of bringing, um, bringing the individual's potential out. So what then obviously happened is, you know, up in Catrick it, with the, the reviews that happened in Deep Cut, the army realised that actually there's something in this values-based leadership and the coaching world. Um, and then, you know, the staff leadership school was developed. Um, the biggest mindset change, and, and I think we're there now, was is the mindset of what well, I'm going to do to them what was done to me. Um, and, and that had to stop. Um, and sometimes there's still a little bit of that now because, well, it happened to me when I went through training. So, you know, I can do it. Um, no, you know, you've got to, we, we're trying to change a whole a whole culture here. So I, I suppose I have seen in my 20 years that whole culture of change in terms of going away from the didactic kind of style in training to, to, to the coaching and the, the nurturing and the, you know, the unlocking the individual's potential um, to, to enhance their performance and get a better performance out of them. And, and that's a great point that uh, you, you talk about sort of the codifying of that uh, of that study by Bangor University um, through our values and standards and, and our army leadership code and, and everything else that's followed on from there. Um, one of the recommendations that uh, from the 2015 leadership review that took place uh, was the creation of the Centre for Army Leadership. And as the first W1 leadership uh, for the army, uh, can you talk us through the, that, that journey and the challenges that you faced in, in, in the creation of the, the Centre for Army Leadership? But interestingly, like you say, it, it ha- off the back of the review, it was suggested uh, or was recommended for a um, Centre for Army Leadership. Uh, but there were other recommendations as well. Um, you know, at the same time, the Leadership Code was launched into, you know, sort of 2014-15. And I was fortunate enough to be part of that um, in terms of looking at the, you know, again, the coaching and mentoring using my sort of um, knowledge and SME 
in, in the coaching world to help support and bring out the Army Leadership Code. Um, so with with the Centre for Army Leadership, um, you know, started off with a really small team. I think it was two. And I think you've only got one original member still with you. But I suppose um, they had this vision. They had a, a purpose of trying to be the this sort of central hub for the army in, with everything leadership. And I think what the review brought out is actually nationally and internationally, the British army is very good at leadership. But actually what, the one thing that the army couldn't necessarily pinpoint is how we do that and what we do. But actually what codifies, what makes the army, the British army, um, be these world leaders in, in leadership. So that was the the initial purpose of the, of the cow was to try and to bring all that together and be that central point um, for the army to focus purely on leadership. And so, like I say, a very small team. I then joined the team. So there was three of us and that was it. And it was it was really key um, that we had, um, you know, a W01, a, a, a W01, that could be from a soldier's point of view. And I suppose my first challenge for myself and and um, to, to, get a, to get the point across was why are we based at Sandhurst? Because for me, the Centre for Army Leadership needed to be for all rank and you know some other some other reasons. But it was like, how do I make this accessible, this centre for soldiers? I suppose back in 2015-16, you look at the leadership side of the army, probably seen as an officer sport. Very much so. You know, if something came out about leadership, even to a point when the doctrine first came out, you probably had soldiers going, oh, it's got the word doctrine in, it's got the word policy in it. Probably not for me. I'll let the officer read it and, and then and then move away. So, but actually, you know, leadership, as you know, and we all know, it's at every, every level, even, you know, the junior privates coming through, they are a leader and they will be a leader at some point. So it, it was something that I was really conscious of, um, that anything that we'd done and anything that we, you know, we were pushing out in terms of um, sort of products, etc., actually hit the soldier cohort as well. Because, and, and letting the soldiers take ownership not only of their own leadership development, but actually the soldiers are the ones that will be developing the you know the junior ranks and the and the ones even below them. So that, I suppose that was my biggest challenge when I first joined. Is that we're pushing you know we're doing some great work in the centre, but how do we make it accessible to to soldiers? And I suppose looking now and looking at, at where the cowl is now, it's it's so good to see how much it's moved on. Um, you know, it's a it's a great team. It's a bigger team because there is so much more that can be done. Um, you know, it's it's great that now though the, the army has a a central point for folk, you know, leadership and leader development focus, and and that it's actually getting the, you know the, great support from not just those in the military but externally as well. How do you see the Cal's role developing to support the army for the future? Probably what, you know, doing what you're doing is, you know, sort of doing all these um, products that are accessible to, to all. I think that's that's absolutely key to really get the message down and actually let soldiers know that they have a responsibility to develop themselves and, and others in this area. But interestingly, I think, you know, you know, what does the future look like? What does the future of the Army 2030 look like? And I know CGS and uh, others have spoke about what that possibly looks like, you know, technology, you know, the innovation side of things is so for the centre to be looking at those areas and actually what does it mean to be a leader in 2030? Because I tell you what, it's going to be certainly different to when I joined in, in you know, in, in sort of 97. It's changed just those 20 years. You know, you're talking another 10, 20 years 
what does that look like? You know, what does a leader of the twenty, you know, of the twenty thirty actually need to know? What do they need to be doing? You know, is it a diverse organisation where you're trying to lead through technology? So you know, leading through emails, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, because you're spread across the the UK and 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 the world. Um, but also as well is, and we think about you know sort of currently what we're going through with with um, with the pandemic is actually it's the here and now. It's you know what what can the centre for Army leadership be doing for the here and now in terms of leading these in leading our our people through this pandemic. And I know you've done a lot of stuff on leading through crisis, but it's it, I suppose it's sort of like looking sort of five years ahead. But also, you know, maybe look in sort of like the 10, 20 years, you know, what does the future of the army look like and what does that mean for uh, for the leaders in it? Uh, yeah, I definitely think that we're, we're getting early sight of potential future leadership challenges with the, uh, as CGS has put it, the digital boot camp that the, the army's gone through over the last 12 months and, and how we interact with our uh, our people across the, across the whole organisation and the network. It's to ensure that, this, I suppose, the soldier's voice is heard at every level. What is the Army's USP to young people looking to join the Army? Uh, and what should and can they expect from the Army of the 21st century? Yeah, so I, th- I think the, the Army's got so much to offer. Uh, and, you know, we talk about the offer in the Army. And, you know, it's great. Um, it's been able to give somebody a venture, it's able to give somebody challenge. But I think the, the army offers the opportunity to, um, to learn, to develop through mistakes, through educational courses that we already spoke about, and to really develop somebody as an individual, but at the same time, giving them a team, a sense of belonging, um, a, a purpose. I just think we are a unique organisation that is all about the people. You know, only people can do the job that we can do. We can have machines and technology to support us, um, but we have to look after our people. And I think the army does look after its people very well. It's it's improving and getting better and all the time. Um, You know, we are sort of high performing but at the same time, we develop individuals in terms of their needs and their requirements. We treat people fairly, you know, respect others, you know, one of our values. And, um, you know, we're not, we don't tolerate bullying, harassment and and all that sort of um, side of things. So actually, I think, I think we've got so much to offer. Um, so it's quite hard to kind of pin it down to one unique um, selling point. But I think... Ultimately, we we are a unique organisation that offers great opportunities, great challenges, but is very much people focused. You talk about our our people and our in our organisation and and the diversity of, of that organisation. As the first female to be appointed a, a command sergeant major, how do we recruit and more importantly retain our talented female soldiers like yourself? Yeah, and interestingly, we're. Um, you know, we're sort of looking um, into this more. Um, we obviously would love to have more females in the army. I think our um, females make up nine to ten percent of the army. Asking the females what um, you know, what is stopping you maybe from joining the army? What um, more can we do to possibly make it more attractive for females in the army? Um, and, and and there's other areas as well that we're looking at. And um, obviously talking about the female bit here, 
because um, it's interesting that, you know, I look, I do a bit of stuff with army cadets um, and we have the um, university officer training calls across um, the universities. Um, and, you know, especially the army cadets, you know, there's almost sort of like 50-50 male-female ratio. And yet we, you know, we look at the army and we're only 10% um, female. So it's, it's, it's sort of reaching out to those, indiv- you know, those sort of cohorts and saying, OK, so what is it? And I, I think there's a, there's a mixture of things. I think for females, there's probably the fear of, do I dare say it, the fear of failure in terms of fitness. Um, so we do see, um, some, you know, the females drop out you know, even up to the assessment centre level um, and then obviously before starting training because they they have this fear of what the fitness, you know, what fitness level they think they need to be in relation to what they actually need to be. But it's, it's also, um, we're competing against a lot of other jobs, uh, a, lot of, a lot of other roles that outside, you know, outside in, 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 in the, the commercial world and in the business sectors, Actually, they're attracting more females into into those roles. You know, there's certainly more female CEOs of big corporates and businesses. So I think also, so we're competing against that as well. So it's is is you know what can we do to to not less you know not necessarily sort of go and literally drag them off the streets, but what is it that is stopping a female from joining? It's also what you say there is like how do we once once what then can we do to sort of retain them? It's maybe using sort of having role models, but I suppose it's only been in the last probably three four years of from when really I was at the Centre for Army Leadership that I realised that actually I was a role model but I was a role model for, for females in particularly I, I you know for me I had gone through all my different jobs and to me I was just doing my job um, and it wasn't until I suppose I got to the higher rank higher level that actually I then started to have females come up to me and say you're such a role model what you're doing in terms of being the first female command sergeant major, the first female, um, you know, or first, you know, sort of leadership, W1 leadership, is your what you're doing is you're actually breaking down some invisible barriers for, for females to say, actually, I can make that, I can get to that because she's done it. Until you're in that position, you don't realise that you are that role model. And but then that said, I, I am also very aware that okay, I'm sort of in the command sergeant major role now, and and you know, I've I've got this experience behind me. Actually, those females looking at joining the army. They, they, you know, they think, well, that's ages away. That's, you know, that's too far ahead. I'm, I'm, you know, that's too far for me to look and to kind of see myself being. What I need is the corporals and the junior NCOs. And, and those, you know, those female, that level females being role models. Again, you don't have to shout out the fact that you're a role model, but you will become a role model to somebody whether you know it or not, whether they physically come and, you know, sort of tap me on the shoulder and go, you're my role model, I want to be like you. Nine times out of ten, just in someone's head, they will sort of in their head. And I've done it. I've got people in my head that I'll go, I want to be like you. I like the way that you do that, you know, and and I see that individual as my role model. I don't go and tell them and they don't need to know. Females in the army, whether it doesn't matter what rank you are, you, you are a role model to other females. You know, and I've talked about females there, you know, a lot of my role models are actually men. And, you know, so it's it's good to have that mix as well. But I think I think we need to understand what it is that stops a female from joining the army or questions joining the army, which, you know, we are doing lots of things, um, lots of studies and et cetera, to, to really get into that. But also then once, once they're in, 
is being able to show that there are, you know, there are females that have achieved great things, be it in the army or external. That's quite a nice point to make is, is, is about the fact is that in, in reality, uh, across our whole organisation, everybody's a role model. And by being good role models uh, and everyone acting as a role model, it leads to mirroring of behaviour, particularly in our youngest soldiers uh, across the organisation, um, which, which kind of brings on nicely. Actually, you, you talk about role models and, and people coming up to you and, and essentially a mentoring or a mentoring piece comes, comes alive. And how fundamental is understanding sort of coaching and mentoring principles in the army of the 21st century? And, and how does it now benefit our instructors at our training establishments across the country? Yeah, like I say, the army in terms of coaching um, has, you know, really, really progressed o- over the years. And, and like I say, obviously developed um, developed through different studies, trialed at, at Catrick um, through the values-based leadership. And then obviously has is, is been delivered really within ASLS over over well, since 2007 when um, when ASLS sort of opened. But I, it's interesting. Everybody sort of says coaching and mentoring, but actually they're they're two, in my eyes, very different things. And and just to touch on the mentoring side, and you say about role model again, role models and mentors are very very two di- different things. And sometimes now I've got plenty of role models who I look to, um, and then I've got my mentors, and and my mentors are are those individuals that. Some of them know that they're my, they're my mentor because I've told them. I've sort of said, look, I want you to be my mentor. Or, um, and, you know, and they've supported that. And, you know, I try and have a conversation. Um, so we've got uh, reverse mentoring. Um, so, you know, I try and have sort of sessions with them as and when I can to, to really understand what I'm doing. Is, is right and feels right. And also as well, you know, for, for them to kind of mentor me and there's certain people that I will go to when I need advice on certain things. But there's also, I suppose, there's my mentors that, again, don't know that they're my mentor. They don't know that they're my mentors. But I will always go to them, pose a question, seek advice, and they are my, what I call my sounding board. But like with that, you then got coaching, you know, and, and anybody that's in the coaching sort of world that again is just a whole new area of you know sort of techniques and and tools and and different mindsets you know all that sort of stuff coming together and I think it was absolutely key to get that in the training environment at the time that the army you know did the training environment um you know you talk in training environment this is phase one basic training and you're talking phase two um initial trade training and some phase three so the substance trade training areas you hit them in terms of the instructors to use those techniques and that filters so they then use those techniques on the recruits the recruits then see those techniques although they won't see them as coaching techniques they will see that the corporal is asking them questions that they're actually being listened to, that they're being asked their point of view, they're being asked to come up with a plan and you know and unlock their own potential. So that manifests because those individuals then go through the ranks and they end up being a corporal back at training, and then they go through and get the you know the basic education and skills and knowledge needed at ASLS to be able to kind of carry that on, and and eventually I think as you you know as we sin it's taken a long time, but I think that's what's happened. So, I was one of the first instructors that went to ASLS as a student, and I just remember sitting there going, my God, why did I not know this? Sort of like when I was a Lance, Lance Corporal Corporal, I wish I'd known all these skills because I, I've missed out on loads of opportunities here. So I was like, you know, this is great. And then I was able to then take those skills. Interesting then, I then went back to ASLS 
as the instructor delivering the coaching skills to the next cohort of instructors so I was kind of like passing on the baton um and you know if I go you know and then I ended up there as the RSM as the Regimental Sergeant Major at ASLS I then saw instructors coming back who I then took through as a student so it's taken you know that period of time from 10 years if not longer to that generation to kind of come through but I think we can always you can, you can always enhance you can always add you can always just do more and I know ASLS are doing more in the coaching in the coaching arena um, they're trialing some different stuff that hopefully they'll open up to instructors but also to, to the army and um, to be able to use all these different skills because actually it's not just the army that has enhanced and developed its coaching ability actually the rest of society has really took it on and there's certainly much more out there on coaching be it in the private sector and coaching in the in the in the sporting arena i think the word coaching is just you know just as common now as 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 the word leadership was um so it's it's i think we're moving in the right direction and uh, there is there is more because because there will always be more. There will always be more out 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 in society, and we need to be you know we need to be keeping up with that and enhancing that. And you talk about that kind of feedback loop where you're seeing sort of the, those people that are coming on those courses, those instructors, and then they're going back as instructors, and this this constant circle. Um, but forgetting the fact that these instructors, after their post at an training establishment, are going back to their units, and so therefore they're permeating these lessons back throughout the field army in this kind of constant cycle. Do you think we're truly seeing those benefits now in the field army space as well as we rotate these these instructors and these constant courses are running for, and for the recruits, but, but mainly that the field army are now starting to see those coaching skill sets and attributes? Definitely. Like I say, you know, I was talking about the training environment there, but like you said, you know, what, what we haven't said is actually once those instructors finish their two years in their training environment, they are going back to the field army. So they are taking those techniques, those that, that behaviour that they, you know, that they've been using the training and they're using that behaviour and those techniques in field army. So, you know, I think the field army is very much now, like I say, I don't think that it's the them and us, it is the whole of the army now has really put put his arms around and brought on the whole coaching culture across, across every single level. The new recruitment campaign focuses on the power of learning from failure and turning it into success. Fail, learn, win being the slogan how significant to success is learning from failure? Yeah, I, th- I think it's absolutely key. You, you, you know, you fail, you've got to learn from it. I think the army is getting a lot better at, at learning from its failures. Let's add the point here it is you've got to have the safe environment to fail. And it's creating that environment where that somebody feels kind of comfortable enough to make a mistake or, or fail at something and then go away and learn from it. So clearly we're not saying that we want failures to be made when on operations, et cetera, et cetera. As a leader, you've got to be able to create the environment that somebody feels safe enough to fail, but then create the environment where they can learn from it as well. You've got to fail, you've got to learn, you've got to make you know make mistakes, but learn from them because that's the only way that you're going to get better. Yeah, and it's a, it's a combination of, of all those factors in it is, is building that that environment, that trust, respect and, and understanding actually from the soldiers to know that they can fail and and that it can be turned into a learning opportunity and through self-reflection and understanding and, and, and building upon that actually when we're in training, that's when we should be making our mistakes and on operations so, so we don't make them and that we can move forward collectively as an organisation. 
I think that's something that individually you probably have to work internally on. It does feel uncomfortable to allow people to make mistakes because as a leader, you want to jump in and stop the mistake from happening, but you've also got to take that step back and allow the individual to make the mistake. But that's where as a leader, then you control that environment. It feels uncomfortable allowing people to make mistakes but you as a leader have to allow them to make those mistakes in order then to develop, but then support them, support them and develop them and, and, and bring them on with you. Yeah, and, and that's the key part, I think, is, is the support element and the guidance and giving the, the space and freedom to allow them to make the mistakes, but, but to pick them up when they need to be picked up. And it's actually something that CGS spoke about on uh, episode three, our episode three podcast, in which he talks about delegation and, and delegating to the point of discomfort, but then delegating even further and that we need to be comfortable with being uncomfortable so that we can get our soldiers and our officers to learn as much as possible throughout their careers. Like many other sectors, the Army has had to adapt its training practices in the wake of the current uh, COVID-19 pandemic. What changes have been made and how has this affected leadership across the training establishments? I think the whole nation has had to, to go through a huge change because of the pandemic. There has been many changes. I need to you know, thank and I can't praise enough the, the staff. And that's not just the military, that's the civilian, the contractors that have allowed us to be able to continue training. You know, so in the first lockdown, um, you know, we sent all the, all the recruits home. We didn't stop training. Training continued. Um, and, you know, some outstanding junior NCOs and, and junior officers really, really embraced the technology and were delivering some absolutely outstanding work through virtual means, you know, using Strava as for fitness and, and, and they were just fantastic. And I can't praise them enough for the work that they've been doing in the, in the virtual space. Lots of changes have been made in terms of um, the way that we do things. So everything is taking that little bit longer. So we've had to look at the training programs to allow more time. So instead of um, the one hour queuing for the cookhouse um, for lunch, it's now gone to two hours because everything, you know, everybody's two metres apart and it's being controlled. It's more staggered. So everybody is not everybody in there at one. Whereas the normal lunch window for the, you know, for the chefs, et cetera, is, is a one hour window. That's obviously now been extended for two hours. So that's, you know, working with the contractors, et cetera, to allow that to happen. There has been some small changes uh, in terms of the training delivery. So in the soldier space, there's been elements that have been reviewed to see whether or not they're actually critical or a nice to have um, so you know normally basic training for a junior uh, for a regular soldier is 14 weeks at the moment we're delivering the course in 12 weeks and it's things that at the moment aren't possible to do anyway so one of the um, one of the things that the soldiers go and do is a, uh, a battlefield study so they go over to Eeps to the to the Mellon gate they you know they do a bit of a battlefield study and a reflection period can't travel, COVID restrictions. So do you know what? That's saved sort of two and a half, three days in the programme. The other area is is kind of the soldier development wing, which is a little bit of the adventure training. So we put them on the high wires, we get them in a canoe and, and working as a team. And, you know, those in the military, we've all been there actually. But what it's doing is developing the soldier. It's, it's, it's taking them out of their comfort zone. It's putting a little bit of risk 
but it is a controlled risk. So, and then there's other elements. Looked at what what a soldier needs to have to be able to sort of leave training and go on to its trade training, and then go on to the you know into the field army. So, small minor changes. Um, tra- changes. There's some big ones in terms of the way it's been delivered. Everything, you know, sort of like two meters and working in sections. You know, the section commander not being able to get um, into their sort of bubble, if you like, their household. It has to, you know, has to stay out. So yeah, so lots of changes. But I cannot emphasize how well the team at all levels and, and like I say, military, civilian, and the contractors, how they have all adapted to be able to deliver what they're delivering today. Uh, Sarah, uh, thank you for 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 all your answers so far, but can't let you go without um, doing the mandatory quick fire rounds of questions, which we've done with all of our guests up until this point. So uh, to start off, best leader you've ever worked with? I'm going to say probably that cook sergeant that allowed me to make those mistakes and learn from them um, because he went on and, and taught me so much more just about my trade, but about being a leader too. Most inspirational non-military leader? I guess I'd say, I suppose a little bit military, um, is the cadet adult instructors that I had at my detachment who allowed me to be the first, you know, the first female in. But actually, I open that to all the adult cadet instructors that are out there volunteering. They give up their time to help develop the youth and the generation. Most enjoyable leadership position? Probably, it might surprise people, um, I was the regimental catering warrant officer for the 2nd Battalion Parachute Regiment. Now, I was only there for a very short period of time, but I had my own catering department. I had my own, you know, soldiers that I was able to develop, to coach, to mentor, to enhance their skills. And it was the real first chance I had. I felt that I was making a difference to other people by developing them. What would you tell a young Lance Corporal Cox about leadership with hindsight? That you are a role model even as a Lance Corporal, people will be looking up to you, both male and female, making sure that you are values and standards and that you are the individual that others want to inspire to be. But also as well to to make sure that you remember that everybody everybody's situation is different and you really got to know you and your team, you know, sort of self-awareness. And I'm very conscious that I, I wasn't very self-aware initially um, in my junior days. So, yeah, make sure you're self-aware, um, but, uh, yeah, aware of the, every, everybody else's and, and the team around you. And finally, what is your biggest leadership challenge in the future? Personally, I think it's going to be leading through technology and the digital age because I am not social media savvy I uh, you know I, I struggle with technology so probably personally for me will be leading using technology. Sarah thank you very much for all your time. I really hope you've enjoyed this episode as much as I have which has provided a greater insight and understanding from a command sergeant major's perspective. An insight that is directly linked to how we recruit and train our soldiers for the 21st century and the significance of a transition from a predominantly transactional form of leadership in the past to where our instructors are now trained and encouraged to use coaching skills to best effect, and as Sarah said, as a way of unlocking the potential of every recruit. This goes hand in hand with the current fail, learn, win slogan, and as Sarah talked about how as leaders we must create the right environment for it to succeed, how we must try and give our people the freedom to make mistakes, no matter how uncomfortable it may feel but also how we must be ready to support and guide 
when these failures or mistakes do occur, so that we can turn them into the vital learning opportunities they present, allowing our future leaders to be nurtured and to reflect on their actions that shape their decision-making. And finally, the most common theme throughout this episode was about role models and their importance in nurturing our future leaders. It was interesting to note that despite all of Sarah's success to date, it was only in the latter stages of her career she realised that she was truly a role model to many of the female soldiers she has served with, and even more so since becoming the first female command sergeant major. We must realise that regardless of rank or status, we are all role models to someone somewhere. Our behaviour and actions are always being watched, and as such we must always lead by example. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, please do subscribe to our podcast, visit our website, Centre for Army Leadership, or follow us on social media, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn.